All right, now on to today's program. Uh, John Hager, as many of you probably know, he's graduated from Purdue University with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, and then later from Harvard University uh, with a master's degree in business administration. He then served in the U.S. Army, the Army Reserves, rising to the rank of captain. A business executive who started at the bottom of the career ladder, John rose rather quickly through the ranks of the American Tobacco Company, ultimately to the position of executive vice president. After a near-fatal bout with polio, John then went ahead to rebuild his life and his career, and he continued to work for the company in several capacities and ultimately retired as senior vice president for Leaf and Specialty Products when the corporation was sold in 1994. In 1997, John was elected to Virginia's second highest office, that of lieutenant governor, and served in that position for four years. His full-time approach to serving the people of Virginia redefined the role of lieutenant governor. Soon after the events of September 11th in 2001, John became the Director of Homeland Security for Virginia and served in that position until 2004. Initially serving with Governor James Gilmore, John led the transition and then assumed the cabinet-level position of Assistant to the Governor for Commonwealth Preparedness under newly elected Governor Mark Warner. On June 1, 2004, he was nominated by President George W. Bush to the position of Assistant Secretary for special education and rehabilitative services, and then was confirmed by the Senate in November of that same year. In this position as assistant secretary, he was responsible for the Office of Special Education, the Rehabilitative Services Administration, and the National Institute of Disability Research, with a budget of some $13 billion. On July 27, 2007, John Hager was elected chairman of the Republican Party in Virginia and served to complete the unexpired term of Ed Gillespie in June 2008. He now serves on nonprofit boards and travels widely with his wife, Maggie. Here today to talk on his new book, Best Seat in the House, please join me in a warm welcome for Lieutenant Governor John Hager. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate that. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, and uh, Jamie, thank you for that uh, generous introduction and uh, for inviting me to make this banner lecture. Uh, we've been members here at the, what I still call the Virginia Historical Society uh, for many, many years since the early 70s, and I can recall so many uh, pleasant occasions and exciting activities that have taken place here. So it's a pleasure to return and to be with so many of you in the audience, thank you all for being here, for your interest and support. And uh, uh, it just means a lot that uh, you would care enough to come and on this nice summer day. So thank you all for being here. Uh, now that the job's been done and uh, lots of people have reviewed and commented, I think I can answer the question. Why write a book? Well, first, I think uh, the reason is to record history. I've got three reasons, and, and the first is record history. You know, life goes so fast, and so much is soon forgotten that it's good to record and study and reflect. I really didn't start out to write a book, but our sons, particularly Henry, used to urge me to record my life's journey. 
I finally had some time. I met a wonderful lady named Nancy Wheeler who was willing to help and work with me in a fashion I preferred. But it really was an experiment uh, to undertake to write this book. And I worked on it for like two and a half years. And I had a rough draft, and I ran into uh, my friend Larry Sabato up in Charlottesville, and he volunteered to take a look at the draft. Well, about two weeks later, I got the nicest letter. He said he started reading it and stayed up till 2 in the morning, read the whole thing, and thought it was great. <laughs> what a glowing review. And uh, he made a couple of technical corrections, and... Uh, gave me a real boost so to finish the job. Well, the second reason to write a book is to tell stories. People love stories. Uh, first accounts, reflections of others, interesting stories that reflect life. The idea that individuals make plans and achieve them in an orderly, progressive, and linear fashion is the way we may think but it never really happens that way. Change is a certainty. Nothing is so predictable as the unpredictable. And the world story is told in comedy and tragedy, laughter and tears. Not all endings are happy, but some are wonderful indeed. And my life is no exception. And so I think stories bring this history and people's lives to life. And third, and probably the most important reason to write a book is to inspire people. There's no life that does not cross places that Robert Frost describes as, quote, like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig having lashed across it open. Life, <laughs> the mysteries of good and evil, achievement and despair, faith and doubt. Well, I've had all the above. And with my life following the laws of undulation, like rolling English hills with heights and depths of extraordinary magnitude in the road, Bob Holdsworth says my life is in my message transcends politics and should inspire us all. I never really realized it until so many have come forth with such comments. So those were my three reasons to record history, to tell stories, and to help inspire people. And the name of my book is The Best Seat in the House. Since being struck by polio in 1973, I've enjoyed life as a participating sport in the game not on the sidelines. Life has been whole and exciting by doing and not observing. The up-close and personal involvement with so many individuals, organizations, and groups has been enriching and fulfilling, with so many of these people helping me along the way. I've always felt capable of success in my wheelchair. Virginia is a very special place. And with over a million miles traveled, visiting each and every city and county multiple times, I'm convinced that we landed in the right place and we lived through wonderful times here in this great commonwealth. I'm privileged to know that what some see as a handicap 
has instead been enabling, not disabling, opportunity to serve others, joining business and civic and charity and community, political and social events. I sometimes found me in my wheelchair up front, often in the middle, sometimes in the back, but they were all the best seat in the house. Many people were critical to my achievements, and some have contributed significant reflections in the book. For example, Ross McKenzie and his marvelous introduction, Maggie Hager, my loyal supporter, Jack Berry, Susan Shar, Andrew Pepin, Jim Alexander, my fishing buddy, Paul Galani, my biggest cheerleader, they've all added so much. The book covers my lifespan, and to me it all fits together, and sad to say since 1973 has been lived in a wheelchair. Of course, that's the bad news. The good news that I was able to do 13 marathons in innumerable shorter races due to a racing wheelchair. I've turned, you know, I've turned over in it in all directions. Once, once on my head with a broken collarbone, once landing in St. Mary's emergency room where Chris Bredrup announced, yep, you did it. You broke all 10 toes <laughs> on that concrete post. That was to avoid a car. Anyway, uh, life in a wheelchair, particularly a racing wheelchair, was very exciting. Um, I've got some good wheelchair stories. Once in traveling on business to Russia, I arrived at the uh, airport, quite happy to have gotten there after a long flight, and the wheelchair also arrived. I was certainly glad it made it. And uh, there were two burly men who met me at the gate, and they were determined to haul me away. Uh, I appreciated their help, but I wasn't sure how to deal with them. Anyway, I showed them how to tilt the wheelchair back and with one in the front and one in the back, we could roll down this unbelievable length of stairs to get down to the ground level. So uh, we made it, and I gave them a tip, which is what I think they made them very happy, um, only to go to town and stay in our hotel. And the next day, we got up and went back to the airport to meet some associates who were also flying into Moscow. Well, it turned out we went back to the gate where we had arrived the day before and went up an elevator. <laughs> All the way to the gate, parallel to the steps. And I said, boy, anyway, you learn lots of things. So I got started in politics in the mid-'70s as a volunteer. Uh, Several of the top Republican people came to see me. This was not long after I'd had polio and survived and was in a wheelchair. And they, we went to the downtown club, which doesn't exist anymore, and they discussed that with me to run for the General Assembly. You need to run for this seat in the General Assembly. And I, they sort of scared me to death, really. Uh, I said no. I had a young family, and I was just getting my feet on the ground. I needed to make sure I could keep my job, and um, 
I said I'd get involved. I would volunteer, and I would be an active volunteer, but um, I wasn't going to run for any office, that was sure. So uh, I ran for the State Central Committee, and I did get elected to that. And I also became a delegate to the uh, 1980 Detroit Republican Convention that nominated Ronald Reagan. Well, that was quite an experience. That was my first big convention and my first uh, significant role in the party. Um, there was a senator from North Carolina named John East. And John East was also in a wheelchair. So when I got to Detroit, everybody thought I was John East. <laughs> well, that was very handy because it got me in a lot of places <laughs> that I probably wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. And uh, so I got into the neatest places, and uh, we really um, began to get involved with the party. Uh, we stayed far out of town in a motel uh, with the uh, delegation, and John and Eddie Dalton, John Dalton was governor, and they allowed me to ride with them in the state limo down to the convention center and back at night. In, in those days, we would come back after the session in the evening, and this went on for like four or five days, and we'd come back to a big dinner at the hotel. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who was married to John Warner, would usually come back with us, and he would stay downtown. Well, Elizabeth liked her toddies. <laughs> uh, so after several drinks and rounds of wine, they would uh, decide that they had to do something with Elizabeth. So they'd get her to hold on to the back of my wheelchair, and we, I would roll slowly and get her up to her room and open the door and sort of give her a nudge and put her in the room and lock the door. And I said, wow. So then I'd go back down and maybe have another drink. But uh, that's the way we dealt with Elizabeth Taylor, but that was quite an experience. And then there was Bob Patterson. I don't know how many of you knew Bob Patterson. He was my roommate. And Bob, of course, was with McGuire Woods and quite a famous lawyer. And Bob would be on the phone all day and night. And uh, anyway, it came time to go to the convention. He would meet me down there. And he'd say, Hager, now you stay still. And he would tape a fifth of scotch under my wheelchair. <laughs> And uh, security was nothing then like it is now. <laughs> and see, and he'd say, now, don't you move. And he would, I said, well, I don't allow people to push the wheelchair. Oh, no, don't you move. And he would push me right through security. <laughs> and we'd get on the floor, and he'd retrieve his bottle of scotch. Well, needless to say, we met a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, had some good times, and... Uh, got to know a lot of influential people. So the, the, that worked. It, it, uh, it helped make the long evening. So uh, I've got memories of so many national conventions. I've been blessed to be to all of them since that time in 1980, and that's a while back. But uh, I remember uh, the San Diego convention when Bob Dole and Elizabeth and uh, Jack Kemp and his wife came 
across the water in a speedboat. And when they landed at the dock, I knew Elizabeth because I, uh, she had dated my roommate in graduate school. They got off the boat and she just about slipped in the water and she said, John, what am I gonna do? And anyway, um, that's, a, that's a great memory. And our son Henry was with me at that convention. And then when we went to Dallas, our son Jack went and after the convention was over, we uh, went fishing down in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and had an unbelievable fishing trip. So I, I got so many fond memories. Well, when I got to the New York convention, uh, which was uh, in Madison Square Garden, came time for the last night and George Bush was gonna make his acceptance speech. And this was in 2004 for the reelect campaign. And uh, his daughters, Jenna and Barbara, got on stage and they made their presentation, introducing their father. And about that time, I got a text on my phone. I guess we had texts in those days, I don't know. Or maybe a call, and it was from Henry. And Henry he said, I'm in the hall. And I, I said, you are? He said, yeah, I flew up from Washington for the evening. And I said, well, that's interesting. So I figured something was up. But anyway, <laughs> that's when Jenna and Barbara made their thing. And uh, apparently, uh, I saw him for about five minutes. I couldn't compete with Jenna. <laughs> and uh, he stayed for the evening and stayed most of the night and flew back to Washington to go back to work the next morning. So I knew something was up. And obviously, uh, as you all know, that led to their wonderful marriage 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago last week that they were married down in, uh, on the ranch in uh, uh, Texas. And quite another great recollection and wonderful experience and great memories. And they're doing just fine these days, just like our other son, Jack, who's up in Philadelphia. So we've got five grandchildren now to chase after. Well, another vivid memory is 9-11. And on 9-11, I was driving to a meeting in Washington. And I hadn't gotten too far. I had gotten to Ashland. And uh, in those days, we had these big bulky box phones in the car. And the phone started ringing, and my cell phone started ringing, and I got two or three calls, and obviously something was up. So I turned around and went to the Capitol. And I got to the third floor of the Capitol about the same time as the governor, Jim Gilmore. And it became an unbelievable day uh, with news conferences and meetings and threats and all kinds of stuff going on that I was witness to and, and part, of, part of the action. Well, at one point late that morning, the Navy called from uh, Norfolk and said, you need to identify the 10 top targets in Virginia. You know, things like nuclear power plants or the electrical grid or uh, the Pentagon. Think of the 10 top targets in Virginia. Well, we were sitting there on the third floor of the Capitol, which was probably the number one target, <laughs> totally oblivious to any danger, sitting there listing the targets. 
in, uh, in real time. And it's just uh, amazing to me that uh, in, in retrospect how calm we were and not even thinking that something like that was happening. And here we were in one of those top 10 targets ourselves. Well, uh, that day became uh, a, a very interesting day for all of us, as you can remember 9-11, uh, and a day when I started working on Homeland Security, wasn't even sure what it was, became the director for Virginia. Um, that was at the end, near the end of my term as lieutenant governor, and uh, I had not been able to get the nomination for governor, so uh, I agreed to stay on and be the uh, Homeland Security Director under um, Governor Warner and learned a lot in the process. And uh, we made great strides in, in Virginia. And while we're still not all safe every day, and particularly from these terrorist threats, uh, I think we have done so much to improve security and to improve our uh, harden our assets in Virginia, and I'm very proud of that job that has been accomplished. 9-11 was uh, a, a, a war, a threat on our country, and I hope we never have to go through anything like that again. And in fact, I'm, I'm glad about a lot of the progress that's been made since then, but uh, that, was, uh, that was some day. I never will forget going home that night. The Capitol Police says, we're taking you home, and we're going to watch your place. And I said, what? And it just shows how things had changed. So much had changed on that, on that day. Well, Bob Holdsworth says, when so many are cynical about politics, that my book is a welcome antidote. And I think about yesterday, of course, the General Assembly uh, finally adjourned for the year and passed their budgets. And I think about how different it is just in the uh, 10, 12 years since I've been out of the game, how, how much it's changed. You know, we were very cordial in our day. Uh, we had our contest and our debates and felt strongly about our positions and our uh, policies, but it never came to the point where it is today with this extreme polarization and people not talking to each other. And um, Part of it, I guess, is due to the Internet. The Internet has provided a lot of great things in our life, but the Internet has also made it possible to make statements about people and to spread rumors and to tell lies, uh, there's no policeman. And so that's one big change in politics. I think uh, um, the extremity, both parties have been driven to the extreme, and now our elected officials are more afraid of a party challenge, a primary or a convention, than they are the real election. And redistricting has had something to do with it. And the amount of money in politics today is just incredible, even escalated wildly in just 10 years. 
And so when I think of, uh, think back, I, I guess I'm sounding like the good old days, but when I think back about how people did work together and people cooperated and felt so, so strong about working for the Commonwealth and carrying out their responsibility and their dedication to get things done, I despair a little bit about what's happening today and in this extreme uh, bitter environment as opposed to bipartisan environment. And there's so many stories I could tell about uh, my time in the Senate uh, with so many good people, um, stories about my time in Washington. Um, it's a great place to visit, but you really wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> and I did visit for three years, and uh, I learned a lot. In fact, at one point, I thought everybody ought to be sentenced to have to work up there for a couple of years, and they might understand. Um, but it's gotten out of control, and I don't know how we ever will get it back into control. It's so big and so unmanageable and so crazy, and some of the rules are ridiculous. Um, in fact, it was the frustration after three years of working in a great job that I decided to take on another great job, which is chairman of the Republican Party. Who would want to do that? <laughs> um, but uh, all these have been such interesting experiences and uh, people have been so great to me that uh, I guess it made sense to write a book and put these experiences on paper. Uh, it's an interesting book. I hope you enjoy it if you are able to uh, get a copy. And uh, uh, that's my story. So let's take some questions. I'd love to uh, hear your uh, questions and see what you've got to say about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we've got two mics that uh, we can. So who's going to kick off? Coming right behind you. Get the mic down here. You give us some hope. I mean, I've known you from a number of campaigns, including your personal ones. And I was a legislator many years ago up in Pennsylvania. So my, I, I absolutely agree with you with, with you know, the extremes. What's hopeful to you? What, what do you see out there that says, okay, yeah, we're on the extremes, but this is happening. You know, this is Because you've always been somebody, no matter what was going on, had something hopeful to say. Give us something hopeful. <laughs> Well, I've got a great deal of faith in the American people. You know, um, the people are smarter than we give them credit for. And they're going to end up voting the right way. Uh, and I think uh, President Trump tapped into that. He realized that, you know, the people weren't just going to follow what the pundits said or what the media said. And they weren't just going to be told what to do, that they had enough sense to make up their own minds. And so I've got great faith in the people of this country and in who they will select to lead us in various positions. And uh, in spite of the system, which has gotten messed up, I think the people have the strength to, uh, to make it better. You know, the American story is just un unreal. I mean, the fact that people can rise from any kind of circumstance to, to the greatest of heights 
is something that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world uh, for a multitude of reasons. But um, the American story of liberty is, is unparalleled. And I think uh, the people of our country have the ability and the power to, uh, to right whatever wrong and to, to keep it straight. And it may take a while, but I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. And I'm optimistic about our youth. Uh, the kids today are so smart and uh, so well put together uh, that they've put us to shame. I mean, you know, that's amazing what some of these young people are doing as they graduate from uh, school and as they graduate from college and, you know, they got great futures. Let's just hope we can control technology and we can control uh, uh, the system. Thank you. Since you've been in the game and now out of the game, I'm going to take you back a little bit in history. Would you care to comment on the rise and fall of Bob McDonald? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Bob McDonald's a good friend of mine. Bob McDonald's a good man. I think, uh, I think what happened to Bob is uh, several things. I think, number one, he was taken in by some of the staff. And, you know, as the job gets bigger and bigger and the possibilities get bigger and bigger and they started talking about him running for higher office, running for president, I think the staff begins to have more and more influence and begins to tell you what to do. And uh, unfortunately, his wife uh, had a problem. She had a drinking problem, and, and um, she began to do some things that he, I don't know whether he was aware of them or not, but he certainly didn't do anything about it. And so between the staff and his wife, I think things were happening that he didn't really control and that he didn't really uh, condone, certainly, or... And, but, but they certainly all together then ultimately brought him down. There's no question he should have had more command and control of what was going on. I don't think he, I don't think he wanted those things to be going on, but I don't think he was aware of some of it. And, uh, but there's no question it was wrong. It was bad. And so he had to stand for it and Ultimately, it destroyed his career. Um, I, th I think it's real sad because I think Bob McDonald did a lot of good things for Virginia. I think he was a very capable, intelligent person and a, a fine person and uh, a very humble person. Once all this happened, I mean, he's, he's, been, uh, he's been very humble about it. He's down in Virginia Beach now, and he's working in a couple of jobs trying to repay some of his legal fees and uh, trying to remake his life the best he can. So it's a tragedy. But, uh, and, and we're all responsible, not just for what we do, but what goes on around us. When, when you're responsible for it, then you have to stand for it. And that's what happened. Uh, do you have any suggestions for campaign finance reform? Well, campaign finance reform, I've always described it as a jack-in-the-box. You push it down here and it pops up over here. Uh, they've tried to reform it several times. There are 
different systems in different states around the country. Uh, I think I think we're right in Virginia. I think transparency and reporting, and up until recently, our system needed some improvement. But transparency and reporting is the answer to campaign finance reform. Every time you try to control it, it doesn't get controlled because if you try to control the amount of money people give, then they're wealthy people who don't need to have somebody give them money. They can spend their own money. And so it's very difficult to um, have true campaign finance reform. It's almost an oxymoron. And every time, as I say, every time they try to uh, make improvements and come up with a new campaign finance reform bill that becomes law, it usually makes it worse. It's not happened successfully in a long time. And so I think if we have instant reporting, full transparency, uh, to let people know where the money's coming from and who it's coming from, that's the only answer I know to do anything about campaign finance reform. The rules have not worked. Governor, uh, I haven't been to as many conventions as you have, but I've been to a few. <laughs> and I was wondering, as the parties have become more politically and ideologically polarized, what's your current view on the role of political conventions? Not so much in terms of picking party leadership, but those conventions where we nominate candidates for governor, candidate for U candidates for U.S. senator, where do you stand on that age-old debate between party nominating conventions versus primaries? It's a great question, because I don't think there's an answer. <laughs> uh, both have their merits. Both have their demerits. You know, uh, Either, in either case, you're going to have candidates competing with each other. And in either case, the two parties and the candidates and, and their followers, their supporters, are going to be mad at the other guy when the other guy wins. So no matter who wins, there's going to be a leftover group that's not very happy. Sometimes there are multiple candidates. And so... One of the ideas of conventions is that you can confine it to the convention, and hopefully when you leave, you'll join hands and, and be supporters. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, it, 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 if you go to a primary, uh, of course, it demands a lot more fundraising, and so the skill to, to raise money so you can get your message out, improve your name ID, and be competitive in a an election is a lot different than work in the back room and the delegates for a convention. So I'm not sure that there's any answer. I mean, if you're a candidate, the best thing is luck. Uh, <laughs> and what I mean by that is like Tom Garrett has stepped aside now in the 5th District and in 35, in, what, in two weeks, 35 individuals are going to decide who the, who the who the nominee is. Well, you don't have to raise any money for that, and that's over in two weeks. So uh, that's what I call luck. Uh, or you're lucky if you don't have a really uh, two really good candidates at the same time, because sometimes you got really two really bad candidates at the same time. 
So luck enters into it if you're from the candidate's standpoint. But the debate between primaries and conventions, I don't know that it will ever be settled. But generally, a primary involves more people. It's fair because uh, everybody can participate. Nobody's eliminated. Um, and I think, in general, certainly for statewide offices, primaries are the, are the best, best option. Now, that creates another problem, and the fact is that people don't vote. Uh, our voting participation in Virginia is terrible, uh, particularly in primaries. You'll have 10, 12, 15% at best. And so one of our great assets in this country is to be able to vote. So if you have a, uh, a primary, I would urge everyone to go vote, even if they're not that interested in it. That, that is our greatest uh, treasure, to be able to vote and influence the outcome. Uh, conventions tend to aggravate people, and after people have been to one, they say they're never going to go back. Uh, because there's so much acrimony, there's so much uh, people try to delay the vote so that they can change, you know, and get people to go home and change the rules. And it's just, I don't know. So primaries, I think, in general, are the best, although they both have their merits. Got the mic coming. <clears throat> Some time ago here in this auditorium, we heard a lecture about the founding fathers. And the point was made that some of those personalities cared very little for one another as we have today. But one, the one thing they could do was they could compromise. Do you think the art of being able to compromise is gone? Well, it, it's not gone because if you compromise and settle something and, and, and uh, get something accomplished, there's not going to be any news media coverage. The, 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 the news people don't care about compromise. They want something sensational. They want to stir up the controversy. So compromise is still alive and well. You just don't hear about it. Uh, I was with Dave Bratt the other day, and Dave said, 90% of what we do never gets covered in the press. And the 10% gets covered is where we have the acrimony, where we have the battle, the fights. But they do a lot where they compromise. And all in our lives, you know, when you compromise, there's no more problem. But when you don't compromise, then the problem exists and agitates. And so it tends to take... Uh, the, the lack of compromise tends to get an inordinate amount of attention, whereas the compromise gets no attention. So I think a compromise is still alive and well. The question is, can we do it more? And uh, if, um, if, if, if there's a system that would advantage both parties, you know, like mediation in, in business, many times you have a mediation in labor disputes, and that's that's the way to go. And so if you could, I, I think we mostly focus on the General Assembly and 
the Congress where we think they ought to compromise more. And, and I'm hopeful uh, once elections are over, they tend to compromise more. So uh, I think it's still alive, sure. One over here, and then this will be the last. So two dollar questions. How can we get history back in education? My 17-year-old grandson, I had come to see Gary Powers, and I asked him, did he know what the Cold War was? He said, Granny, I have no idea. No kidding. <clears throat> well, I'm 100% in favor of that. Um, I think history is important. I think history allows us to learn. And, you know, there's so much to learn, and particularly about the mistakes that are made. Uh, you know, when you just, right now, the, here at the, uh, at, at the Museum of History and Culture, they have the World War I exhibit. And most of us don't know enough about World War I and of course, it was the precursor to World War II, and perhaps the precursor to what's happening today. And there's so much to learn from 100 years ago in World War I. Uh, as an example, I think history is very important, and I was opposed to doing away with the SOLs on history, and um, it, it ought to take place uh, I think in the fourth and fifth grade when I came along, we did a lot of history. And, and then I'm trying to remember what, what the next grade was. But anyway, uh, I agree with you. History is very important. There's so much to learn from history. I think we could avoid some of our problems if we took history seriously and tried to study the lessons of what can be learned from history. So I hope they, I hope they get back to reinforcing history. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's so simple now, too, with the Internet and with, I mean, to think that you can go to the Internet and look up uh, and get full information about whatever happened on whatever occasion, whatever your interest is. Uh, I mean, it, it just, the world is so expansive now with the Internet to be able to get lessons and learn about history. I spent 30 years as an educator and I'm totally amazed and appalled at what's happened to our schools today and it's not safe for children to be there. I am totally opposed to teachers strapping on a gun and being defending uh, students and themselves <laughs> against people coming in and shooting. What can we do to get the politicians to stand up to the NRA and other groups to take a stand and make our schools safe? Well, I think we've gotten their attention with all these happenings and with the uh, accelerated amount of publicity around the various shootings. Um, usually that's what it takes to get politicians to move on a subject is, is this great amount of attention and the popular uprising of the people saying they want something to be done about it. Uh, there are a lot of things that can be done to improve school safety, and I think we're actually doing some of them. Last night, we were here when Teresa Sullivan was talking about 
the very subject at the University of Virginia. And she went on for about 10 minutes talking about a lot of what she called the visible and the invisible moves that they have made up there to improve student safety at the university. Well, you're talking more about K through 12 level. I think uh, the design of the schools can be improved. Fewer doors, I think uh, uh, having uh, school safety officers in uniform will help. I think uh, training our students and our teachers how to react to certain situations. I think we need to take seriously uh, practice and training. Uh, I think there are lots of things that can be done. And I'm hopeful with this publicity, that's the bad news, that the good news is that we'll take a, take a cue from that and uh, put more effort on the things that we can do to assure uh, student safety. Thank you. Thank you.